Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the, full, the, the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish... This, now, this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As we come to God's word, uh, we need his help to understand, to be changed. So let us begin by a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus revealed himself so many times to his disciples and that they recorded it for us, that we too might believe. Uh, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. May your spirit have its full work in our hearts as we meditate on your word together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are so close to the end of John's gospel, and I was planning to be done next week, but now that I won't be here, we are teasing it out one more week. So... We are entering into the final words of John, and here we have this third revelation of Jesus, the third manifestation as Jesus is showing himself to the disciples again. Now, if you remember, he first showed up to Mary at the tomb, but then he showed up in the upper room that night to the disciples without Thomas. Thomas refused to believe, and he shows up again the next week while Thomas is there. The second time to his disciples. And now here we are given the third time. And so one of the reasons John is writing this to us is apologetic. He's not just uh, recounting that Jesus came back from the dead and you should believe me. But he did it many times in many ways. And we did many things together. So that at the beginning of his letter he says the one whom we have seen and heard and touched. They proclaim to you. 
and often is the practice, especially at this time, you need two or three witnesses. And so John is writing three accounts, three times that he visibly, physically saw and interacted with the resurrected Lord. Of course, we have many other accounts of his resurrection in the other Gospels. And even Paul tells us that at some point Jesus revealed himself to over 500 people, likely around this same time in Galilee. Now the disciples have returned to Galilee. It's what the angels told them to do. It's what Jesus told Mary to tell the disciples to do, that he was going to go before them to Galilee. And if you remember these men who are named here, Galilee is their home. It's the region of of the country where, right, Nazareth and uh, the sea where they used to fish, and Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. All of these people who Jesus called were from the region of Galilee. And so they have gone back home. They have gone back home. Not only home where maybe they grew up, but home to where Jesus began his ministry with them. Now, when we go home, I don't know what your home-going experience is. I'm a very nostalgic type of person. I go back to my hometown, and of course I go to my parents' house where it is now, but I will go and drive down the street where we used to live when I was a very young child and look and see who's living there now and if they change the color of the siding and, you know, the park across the street and drive by the place I used to work. Uh, I don't know, I'm weird like that. But there's something about going home that often elicits some sort of nostalgic feeling in us. It is, for many people, a a place of comfort, of routine, right? We're formed at that place. And we see that is happening here with the disciples. They have returned back to life as it seems like it was before Jesus ever came. They're back in Galilee. Remember, Jesus found these guys fishing on a boat. And they're waiting for Jesus to tell them what to do next. Jesus had told them in our last uh, passage that they were going to be sent just as he was sent. And that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit But it appears that he had not really sent them yet and that they hadn't had this transforming empowering by the Holy Spirit yet. Instead, they are continuing to wait. And as they are waiting in their hometown, they do what they know how to do. I'm going fishing. That's what Peter tells them. You know, it's not unlike maybe what we do when we are feeling restless, uncertain, waiting for something to happen. I'm going to go into the office and just get some work done. I'm going to go work on the lawn. The things that are routine, the, the things that we feel like we can have some control over are often what we use to occupy ourselves as we wait. And I think that's what's going on here. I don't know what else to do. Might as well get on the boat and catch some fish, perhaps make some money, of course, to eat. And these aren't just ordinary folks. These are professional fishermen. And so the details of what happens are important for us as we consider, not just that this happened, but as Jesus is revealing uh, himself, he is doing it in this instance that he has orchestrated 
to point to something greater. Right? These are signs that Jesus is doing, and a sign signifies something greater than the moment. So Simon and Peter, or Simon Peter and Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's John who wrote this, and his brother James, and two others that they don't even name, are listed as the men who go out fishing. They're back to life as usual, predictable, comfortable, stable. But what's interesting about this list of disciples, if you think about it, it is not a list of the heroes of the story so far. We just were reminded of Peter's failure as he denied the Lord three times. Thomas, just a chapter ago, refused to believe in Jesus and then was kind of humiliated when Jesus showed back up. We don't know much about Nathaniel, really at all. Seemed to be a quiet kind of guy. John, of course, omits his name in the list as one of the sons of Zebedee. And then we have two people that are so unimportant, unknowable, that they are just named as two others. I think part of this list for us, part of these seven men, is helpful for us to be able to understand how maybe we fit into this category as we go and apply this to our own lives. It's not that Simon Peter is a hero or that Thomas is the bulwark of faith. Maybe we are like Nathaniel and we don't talk. We're one of those disciples whose names didn't even get written down. This is the full breadth of the people who belong to Jesus who are waiting for him to act, waiting for him to tell them what to do. And we're told that they all go with Peter and they went out into the boat and that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. Uh, we like to say in our day, that was an epic fail, Peter. I don't know what would be more humiliating uh, than this as a professional fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, the one that you would have been most familiar with. By the way, the Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee, if there's any confusion there. They don't catch a single fish. Nothing. All night they have labored in the boat. The thing they thought would be comforting, routine, past the time, has turned into a great disappointment. Perhaps three years off the boat has uh, made them a little rusty. I don't know. And so they come in. They're getting close to the shore. They're defeated in their attempt as the you know, ideal window for catching fish is kind of going away. And the day is breaking. And Jesus is on the shore. And in John's gospel, he always has that dynamic of darkness and light. And in the resurrection, Mary goes out before dawn, and Jesus shows up at the break of day. And so here again, he manifests himself right as the light shines into the darkness. In this epic failure of these disciples to even do the thing that they should be able to do best. But they don't know it's Jesus. It's still too dark. He's far away. You know, he's a football field away with just a little bit of light. And he says to them, children, do you have any fish? But 
That's not the greatest uh, translation of this kind of sentence. It's more like, hey, fellas, or hey, guys. It's not that he's calling them little children. And even the way that he's asking if you have any fish is kind of has this negative structure to it. Like, haven't you caught any fish? I'm sure they were disgruntled to have to answer some stranger yelling at them from the shore about how they have failed to catch any fish. And they say to them, no. So he says, cast the net on the right side of your boat over there and you'll find some. Now, I'm not really sure why they would have listened to the command of Jesus to do this. You would think after spending all of their day uh, failing to catch fish, they would probably disregard the voice of a stranger. But perhaps in a moment of desperation at the loss of your own ability to know, right? Somebody nearby you assume to be another fisherman says, no, there's a really good spot right there. You might just succumb and throw your line in to see. And so they do, and then we have this miraculous catch. So miraculous, so large, they aren't even able to haul it in. And the light begins to come on in John's mind, and he realizes that it's the Lord who has told them to do this. John, the one who is always more perceptive, and then Peter, the one who is always more zealous to go into action, jumps into the water. To get to Jesus as fast as he can. There's a parallel to this account in Luke's gospel. It's actually the story of how Peter was first called to follow Jesus. Jesus got onto his boat and they went out and Jesus told him to put out the net. And he said, we've been laboring all night and we have not caught any fish. And he says, lay down your net. And it is so full, they have to bring a second boat to come over. And both of the boats were so full of fish that they were beginning to sink. Peter's response at that time was very fearful, a reverent fear. That he knew that this person was not a mere man and that he was a sinful, undeserving servant. And so he tells Jesus to go away from him. He is just a sinner. Well, three years later, we're in the same lake. Very similar scene. Very similar catch. And then all of the same actors. But Peter responds differently. Instead of wishing that Jesus would go away because of seeing how sinful he was before this mighty act of this divine man sent by God, not sure who he is, Peter instead runs in joy, swims with all of his might to get to him. What has changed in Peter? It's not that Peter has become less sinful and therefore he's more comfortable being around a holy person. No, because Peter, no doubt, is still thinking in the back of his mind, I can't believe I denied Jesus. I can't believe I denied Jesus three times. If anything, Peter is probably more aware of his sin now than he was at the time when he first met Jesus. When he first began to understand that he was sent by God. 
One thing you might notice when you go home is you might have nostalgic feelings about your house or your neighborhood, your first job, your friends that maybe still live there. When you go home, you can never return to the person who you used to be. You may try. You may, like Peter, get on the boat and try to be a fisherman again. But as we see, he failed at that as well. But also the change, the home of where he began to follow Jesus, shows us as he comes back to it that he has changed as well. He no longer sees Jesus as this holy man he's unworthy to be near, but as the one who can accept him and make him right, the one who he must cling to for any hope, the one who causes him to run in joy towards in the midst of his failure. They get to the land. Jesus is already cooking some fish. He's got some bread. He says, hey, bring some of that fish, too, that you guys just caught. So Peter goes and brings the fish. There are 153 large fish. It's a very specific number. If you really want to get into the depths of crazy arguments about biblical things, Go read about why there's 153, and you will be no more convinced now, with no idea why there's 153, than after reading 2,000 people of making up great theories. But perhaps it's as simple as it was so tremendous. How many fish are even here? We have to count them. Indeed, maybe they sold them or divided them among themselves. The point being, these were large and massive quantity of fish. In fact, their net should have broken, and John says that that didn't break. This is an unexplainable phenomenon. It was a sight to see. You talk about a fish story, right? It's not like John wrote this the first time and said, ah, there's 15 fish, and next time it was 150 fish, and now it's 153. No, this was a miraculous act of Jesus providing for them the fish in the net that they couldn't get on their own. He tells them to come to have breakfast with him. We have this interesting phrase here. It says, no one, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And you think, if they knew it was the Lord, why would they want to ask him who he is? Why are they afraid to ask him? And I, once again, it's hard to kind of quite get the grasp of it in a, just a one-to-one translation. But they're really just asking, is it really you, Jesus? Like, it looks like you. I understand that you're here. But the disciples, they still don't quite get it. Jesus has been risen from the dead. He's showed up a couple times. They know it's true, but it hasn't quite all been put together yet. So they're kind of not sure what to think about what's going on. And Jesus, in the way that he served his disciples before, washing their feet, giving them morsels from his own plate, he serves them here bread and fish. Now, not only is this the home where Jesus, 
first called his disciples. This is probably the same shoreline where Jesus fed the multitudes fish and bread. This is the same lake on the shore where he cast out the legion of demons out of the man in the graveyard. When the disciples are here with Jesus in Galilee, it's not merely that it's where they were from, but that this is the epicenter of everything that they have seen Jesus do. And he is reminding them that they have come back home, and it is the beginning of what is to come next. They have been waiting for him. They know they are being sent. They know the Holy Spirit is supposed to come. They have not yet been changed. And here, Jesus serves them again. Now Jesus is doing this sign, of course, to show his love for his disciples, that they might believe in him. But it also points to something much greater. We've already begun to hint a little bit at the ways in which the disciples are no longer able to do the things that they want to in their own strength. And as Jesus has already told them that he is going to send them, just as he has been sent, this is going to be a paradigm of what it means for their life moving forward. Remember, Jesus, when he called his disciples, said that they will no longer be fishers, but fishers of men. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and the two other disciples, they're not fishers anymore. They can't even catch one fish unless the Lord puts it into their net. It's okay to have the nostalgic remembrance, but what is happening here is Jesus is, you know, starting again. He has brought them along for three years, and as Jesus is preparing to ascend to the Father and send the Holy Spirit, is a new beginning. It is starting here again in Galilee. They will not be able to just go back to their life as it was before. They're not merely going to be fishermen in Galilee, husbands and fathers. Indeed, they will continue to do many of those things. They will no longer able, be able to provide for their catch and their own strength and their own wisdom and their own abilities. They are being called to a new task where their gifts and skills won't matter. And if you think about these men here and their uncertainty about how is this really Jesus? What's really going on here? And even the fact that they got onto this boat to go fish and you contrast it with what happens after the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. You see the change that's going to happen. Because instead of being nostalgic finding the ordinary, comfortable ways of their old life. They will be able to do nothing else except proclaim that Christ has risen from the dead, that it is true, that they have seen it, that it is only through him that you can be saved. And that as they go out to fish for men, Jesus will bring them into the net, that he will be the one that provides the fish for the feast. That they will go out as people who are trained fishermen 
to do spiritual work that they have no idea how to do, but that Jesus is going to provide the Holy Spirit and the net and the fish themselves. We, too, are participants in this mission of God. Perhaps we will continue to be fishermen or accountants or whatever it is we find ourselves doing nine to five. But when we come to the Lord and we think back to that time, we are never able to go back before that. It will have fundamentally changed why we are in this world. It's not to denigrate the ordinary. In fact, it gives dignity to the things that maybe would be otherwise undignified. That God's Spirit is at work, and we aren't apostles. Instead, we do these things to his honor and glory. We see him bringing in the harvest. We see him empowering his people doing the things that we can't do in our own strength. Do you want to know how you can lead people to Christ? Well, it's not by your own strength and your own wisdom. It has to begin with dependence and prayer and the work of God's Spirit in their hearts. We see it in the miraculous ways in which the disciples go out, but that continues on now in the ordinary, everyday life of his people. And too often we find ourselves either comforting ourselves in the ordinary, comfortable routines that we know best and ignoring the mission that God has called his people to, or we go into the mission thinking that we are so great we will be victorious in our own strength, but we will find ourselves, if that is what we do, like Peter and Andrew and the rest of them on this boat with no fish in our net. May God remind us of that home experience when he called us to himself. May our worship each week disrupt our everyday occurrences and remind us that God's spirit is calling us into his mission field. That he has placed us in particular places that we are never going to be the same as we once were. And that even next week, you will have changed from this week. And that God is at work in the midst of it. And that everything he calls us to do, he will do it for us. Let us pray that he would give us the grace to trust in him, to depend on him, to seek that he would act and that we would glorify him and run to him like Peter does when he comes through and provides for his own mission. We're just ordinary folks like Peter and Thomas were. We have denied the Lord and refused to believe. But as God's spirit is at work in his people, that is not how we will end. May God give us the obedience that they have here. May God give us the joy to follow after him. And may we look forward to the day when we too will sit with him and eat breakfast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Christ serves his people with such humility and love and grace that they do not deserve. Lord, help us 
to be reminded of what you've called us to as your people. Help us to understand how to love and to proclaim where you have placed us. Lord, help us to be dependent on your spirit to do the work in our lives and in the lives of those around us that we cannot do in our own strength. Lord, fill our hearts with joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.